Welcome to the Informed Pregnancy and Parenting Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Elliot Berlin. Today we're talking about fertility, how to boost and preserve fertility both naturally and with the latest medical innovations. My guest today is a reproductive endocrinologist who is dedicated to helping people overcome their reproductive challenges and infertility issues to achieve their goals of having children. He serves on the board of directors for the American Fertility Association and the Neuromuscular Disease Foundation and is the co-founder of Southern California Reproductive Center, Dr. Shaheen Gadir. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. What a pleasure. Uh, I know you're a wealth of information and our listeners, most of them are pregnant now, but some of them had babies and uh, there's a lot of information here that's going to be relevant to them. But if you're listening to this podcast and you know someone who's struggling with fertility, do them a favor and share today's episode with them. Uh, I want to talk to you first initially about uh, general fertility. Someone, a couple perhaps is trying to get pregnant. And, um, you know, we, my wife and I had this, actually. We were young. We were healthy. We were in grad school. We'd waited a little bit, and then we were ready. And uh, we followed the instructions, and nothing happened. And we tried again and tried again. And eventually, we went to uh, for some medical help. And um, the process can be a little confusing and overwhelming. And I would love to sort through some of the basics with you to help our listeners and their friends. Um, so what happens at the beginning? Like, at what point do you think you have a problem or need help? So fertility is truly becoming an epidemic in our country. Um, our statistics were that one in eight American couples were suffering from infertility, but many of the statistics have changed now, and a lot of studies are quoting one in every six couples are having some aspect that involves either male or female infertility. Mm. Um, the definition of infertility for someone who was under the age of 35 is if you've been trying with unprotected intercourse for more than one year, by definition, you have now been diagnosed with infertility. If you are over the age of 35 and you've been trying for six months, that is also giving you the diagnosis of infertility. And by diagnosing infertility, one of the most important thing is that we really highly recommend for someone to see a fertility specialist sooner than later. I've never had someone come to the office for a consultation where I've looked at them and said, it's too early, leave, I have nothing to offer. Mm -hmm. So whether it's just education on how to proceed, the tests to be done, a general assessment, which hopefully we'll be talking about all of these things, I think it's super important for patients to be aware that it's something to not put on the back burner no matter what age you are. Mm -hmm. But does that mean if you're under 35 and four, five, six months go by, not to panic at that point? So the reason I think the American Society of Reproductive Medicine gives you about a year is that 85% of couples, generally speaking, by the end of that year, under the age of 35, are getting pregnant. Mm -hmm. However, the sad thing in our world is that we're seeing 32-year-old women, for example, that egg quality is so diminished or of such poor quality that sometimes even have to move forward using, for example, an egg donor. Mm -hmm. So I can't fault anyone for coming in sooner in any way, mm -hmm. whether you bring up the discussion with your OBGYN or go directly to a fertility specialist, you really have absolutely nothing to lose. One of the things, Elliot, that I absolutely love that you you said in the beginning of this is that if it's not you, if it's someone you know, please tell them to pay attention to this podcast. So there's no one out there right now that does not know a close friend or relative 
that has not been affected with infertility. Right. It is so spread evenly throughout the entire country and in every population and, and every ethnicity and every socioeconomic status that it's affected that everyone knows someone that had some aspect of infertility. And, um, you, you know, for a long time, it's really been under-talked about. People are, I think, a little ashamed if they're having trouble uh, conceiving, and uh, they don't necessarily share it, so they sort of go through it, and it's very emotionally, uh, it can be very emotionally traumatizing, and um, the treatments, and, you know, they, they can also be, they can strain a relationship in a big way, and when you're alone, it's just that much worse. And I think now, a little bit, there's more conversation about it, and more people realize that they're not alone, that they're surrounded by other people going through the same struggle. Uh, so I'm very happy to add that I'm noticing in the last 14 years that I've been involved in the world of fertility that lately people are being much, much more open about it. Um, I saw a patient yesterday, and the first thing she said is that my really dear friend was your patient and four years ago told me to see you. Mm. I was scared, and the fact that she opened up to me and told me that you were her doctor made it so much easier for me to come in. The fact that people are talking about it more and more has really, really opened up people's eyes. My wife and I have six-year-old twins as a result of IVF, mm. the best things that ever happened to us. Um, we have an older daughter, and after she was born, um, we decided to get pregnant rather quickly and got pregnant right away um, and had a miscarriage. Mm. Little did we know that after that miscarriage, for about a year and a half to two years, we would have major difficulties that led us to do IVF. Um, so it can affect anyone. My wife was in her 20s at the time. Um, looking back, having leftover embryos and our fertility kind of protected for the future um, was a little gift that I didn't <laughs> even think about at the time. So I always talk to patients about not only the pregnancy we're trying to achieve now, but what is your ultimate overall goal of fertility? Are you mm. looking forward to having one child or are you walking into my office 39 and hope to have three to four kids down the line? Because the treatments can be very different um, if you're thinking about preserving and hopefully we'll have a chance to talk about fertility preservation as well. But you have to look at this all encompassed. You have to look about what you're doing then, what you're doing later, and make sure you make a treatment plan. If your doctor or your fertility specialist does not bring up your future fertility plans, he is really not doing a good job. Mm, yeah, it's interesting to think about. Um, I think a lot of times people are just thinking about the now what I want right now. But if you um, think long term, like anything else, if you begin with the end in mind, you can create a much more accurate map for how to get there. 100%. Um, and you made a distinction too, because um, it's confusing. An, an obstetrician can do some baseline fertility evaluation and treatment, but you, then you said fertility specialist. So what's the difference? So I'm double board certified. After a four-year residency program in obstetrics and gynecology, most people get board certified in obstetrics and gynecology, which mm -hmm. I did. And then I continued to do a three-year infertility. It's actually titled Reproductive Endocrinology and Infertility Fellowship, where I, I learned and got into every single detail of every hormonal aspect of the female body that could be affecting someone having children. So we're actually reproductive endocrinologists, so hormones that involve reproduction, and infertility specialists. General OBGYNs, as I did during my training, do a subtle amount minimal amount of training in the world of fertility. So if you leave it all up to your OBGYN, you may be getting the short end of the stick. 
Now, there's a huge variety of what OBGYNs feel comfortable in treating in the fertility world. Some of them are very good and know exactly how to work up a patient and exactly when to refer them over. But the majority of OBGYNs, unfortunately, are holding on to their patients a little longer than they should. A study was performed years back that showed the longer an OBGYN kept treating their infertility patient unsuccessfully, the less chance that the patient would ever return to them once they got pregnant at an infertility specialist's well, that's office. That's very interesting. They, uh, yeah, they, they end up faulting them. Absolutely. And the fact that most of these patients are usually not in their 20s, they're usually older, and time is the most valuable thing that exists to a fertility patient. Mm, that's also good to note. Um, I have a question for you. So in a younger patient who's just trying and doesn't feel like they have an issue yet and has time, are there natural things that someone can do to try to improve their fertility outcomes? So there are many things that a female and a male can do to be as healthy as possible, and being healthy can affect your overall fertility. So, you know, really limiting alcohol intake, completely um, halting any kind of tobacco use, smoking. All the studies show that smoking and marijuana use are very detrimental to all aspects of fertility. For men and women? For men and women. Oh, interesting. For women who have their eggs for the rest of their life, it's an irreversible damage that smoking and marijuana use causes. Mm -hmm. um, and for men, they're lucky they can reproduce, so they'll have to take a long break that's about three months before they start generating new sperm. So alcohol under limited control, I say one to two alcoholic beverages once or twice a week at the most. When it comes to drugs, absolutely nothing. When it comes to smoking, absolutely nothing. Being as healthy as you can be is rather important. Being as close to your normal BMI, which is your body weight, mm -hmm. is incredibly important for both male and female. Mm, so many studies have shown that the higher your weight, the lower your fertility. And they go hand in hand, they're inversely relationship, which as you get heavier, your fertility rates go lower and lower. Do reproductive endocrinologists work with the male partner as well? Absolutely. So whether the problem is female-oriented or male-oriented, so if a male partner has zero sperm or two sperm or the worst sperm, unfortunately, it's the female that's going to have to undergo treatment in order to compensate for the sperm aspect as well. At least so, today. At least today, and that's exactly, you know, we do get feedback from some of our urology colleagues that specialize in the world of male fertility. Mm -hmm. And sometimes they even come in our office and we do procedures together where the urologist is actually um, suctioning and removing sperm directly from the testicle, but then it's passed to us as reproductive endocrinologists in our IVF lab with the egg and trying to make embryos in the laboratory environment. So no matter what, even if the woman is completely, completely healthy, the process of intracytoplasmic sperm injection, which is called ICSI, where they take the sperm and inject it into the egg, occurs in the IVF lab, which is in our office. It's like the ultimate in arranged marriages. It's the ultimate in arranged egg and sperm introduction. Yes. Uh, so can you talk about some of the baseline testing that happens? Like you mentioned earlier, sometimes people are afraid to go to a reproductive endocrinologist. It seems scary. <clears throat> so 
I, I love to kind of just start from the beginning, the way that it works in my office. Sure. Um, so we've now gotten electronic medical records. We have an entire division um, that involves new patient coordinators that give you all the information beforehand that you have to come in. Um, they give you a portal and you go online at home and you enter all of your medical information that you can answer and also your partner does as well. And by the way, when I say partner, we see a lot of same-sex female, same-sex male couples as well. Mm -hmm. So for all couples, everyone goes on and enters all their information. The day of the consultation, we meet in person for approximately one hour. Um, it's in my office. Everything is 100% confidential and private. We go through every aspect of your healthcare and of your background and of your family history, surgical history, medical issues, medications, um, the things in your lifestyle that you should be doing healthier. And just to add one more thing, we were talking about alcohol, cigarettes, and smoking and those things. Um, exercise is also really important. Excessive exercise can also become a problem for some people. Mm -hmm. So that is an issue as well. And excessive heat exposure, especially for males, but also for women, that involves steam rooms, saunas, jacuzzis, hot yoga, hot um, anything that is taking your body temperature temperature up is also bad for both sperm and egg. Hmm, interesting. So after we've gone through a complete history, which um, gives us a very good understanding of how um, both partners are doing, we come up with a list of testing that we think is appropriate and would give us really good, accurate information to find out what the causes of the infertility may be. So for example, for the female, we generally start by doing some hormonal testing. The most important hormone that I test in my office is called AMH, the anti-malarian hormone. AMH is the hormone that comes from every egg in the body. The more eggs that a female has, the higher will be their AMH level. The less eggs the female has, the lower will be the level. So that is an incredibly important test that can be done on any day of the month, whether you're on birth control or off. And the results come back and we discuss them and it tells us really where you stand for your age compared to other women in your age category. Is that a blood test? It is a blood test. So it's telling you roughly how many active eggs there are? Uh, yes. It doesn't come back and say like you have, you know, 346,000 eggs, <laughs> but it comes back and tells us your level is 3.0. And on the scale, that's an excellent number. If this number starts to go below one, it's showing us that you've had some kind of significant decline in your egg reserve. I see. The other blood tests that we do are all specifically done on day two, three, uh, two or three of the cycle and include the FSH, the LH. We do an estradiol level. Um, on those days, not specific to those days, but we usually do them all together, we actually do a thyroid test called a TSH and also another test called a prolactin, which is one of the hormones involved with breast uh, milk production and also can affect implantation. So those five hormones we check um, early in the cycle. We also do an ultrasound that looks at the ovaries. It's done while on the period and assesses exactly how fertile an ovary may look. So it's called an antral follicle count. Um, the ultrasonographers in my office do a vaginal ultrasound. They count the little bubbles on both ovaries, and we add them up. Um, if there's a decent number of them, meaning a, combi a combined probably uh, something between like 12 and 20, the ovaries are rather healthy. Mm -hmm. um, if they start to go low, like each ovary has just a couple little bubbles, it shows us that there's a significant decline in the egg reserve. And if the level starts to go significantly high with higher than maybe 20 to 24 different little follicles on both ovaries together, then we are concerned about polycystic ovary syndrome, PCOS. 
too many too many too follicles. many are also not so good. I see. So you want to be in the zone somewhere Correct. in the middle. Um, and are those five hormones? Is that also a blood test? It's also a blood test as well. Um, the following week, when the period has stopped, we like to evaluate the fallopian tubes and the uterus. Um, we're licensed and do them in our own office. It's called an HSG or a hysterosalpingogram. It's done under an X-ray machine where we inject vaginally into the uterus um, a clear dye that then fo- we follow it by taking X-ray pictures as it flows out of the fallopian tubes, and we let the patient right there and then know if the fallopian tubes are normal and also if the shape of the inside of the uterus is normal. Um, We can do that if people want to just get an overall assessment. There's an additional test we can do called an HSS or a hysterosaline sonogram, which does not involve a dye and it does not involve an x-ray machine, but it involves saline solution being pushed into the uterus. And we do a 3D, 4D ultrasound that lets us see the inside of the uterus very carefully for any potential abnormality in the lining of the uterus. So on these two, are you looking, when you're looking at the uh, ducts, are you looking for the fallopian tube? Are you looking for a blockage in the tube? That is absolutely what we're looking for, but we're also looking for little subtle things like excessive dilation of a fallopian tube can mean that it was damaged in the past with an infection. Mm -hmm. Um, It can also show scar tissue. If you see the fallopian tube is kind of nicked in one place, but it gets open again. Mm -hmm. If we see a fallopian tube that just took a lot of pressure on my side to eventually open it and the dye to go through, it makes us think that maybe there was some kind of mechanical like mucus or debris inside of the fallopian tube and mechanically was obstructing it. So we try to see if things like that open up. But absolutely, having blocked fallopian tubes, we know that a patient can't try on their own and it'd be a waste to continue even one more cycle doing it that way. Because there's no way the sperm can meet the egg through that blockage. Exactly. Um, when you talk about block and then opening, so does that mean that H- HSG can kind of become almost like a treatment if you if you in a very small population of patients where they sometimes have the most commonly noted would be like a mucus plug that fills up out of just over time or for some abnormal reason inside the fallopian tube, pushing it out and clearing it helps. Now studies have shown that after an HSG for the next maybe two to four cycles afterwards, some patients have an increased chance of pregnancy. And every year, we have a handful or two handfuls of patients that get the HSG and immediately afterwards call us they and tell us pregnant. that they got pregnant. Wow. Okay. Maybe maybe they love they like to die. <laughs> That's right. Um, and then also, because on that test, you're looking at the contour of the, the uterus itself. What kind of things are you looking for so there? So if any abnormality in the contour can tell us that there's either, either a polyp pushing into the cavity or a fibroid or a scar tissue. Those are the three most common abnormalities that we see in the inside contour of the uterus. And um, we just recently had a patient who had, she tried for years to get pregnant and then went to an RE and found a septum. What is that? So a septum is a kind of a fibrous wall. So it's not just like the normal uterus. It's very fibrous and thick, doesn't have good blood flow through it. And it divides the uterus into two sides. So it kind of makes it into a heart. Instead of it being like a triangle, um, it basically can bring a wall dividing the two sides. Oh, you can't see it, but it's that cartoon heart shape. It's a cartoon heart shape, and that tip of the heart coming down 
poking down into the triangle is the septum, which is abnormal. The uterine cavity is generally triangular and open. Um, one tip of the triangle at the bottom is going towards the cervix and the vagina, mm -hmm. and the other two tips at the top are each going to the fallopian tubes. If the opening between the two fallopian tubes has kind of something coming down, it's a septum, and that's a very common procedure that I take care of. Um, it's usually done by reproductive endocrinology and infertility specialists where we go in and we separate that wall by dissecting it, um, and then the uterine cavity becomes, again, triangular and open and usually can help significantly um, with pregnancy rates afterwards. In her case, she got pregnant right after. Yeah. Right so after it, that it procedure. it helps a lot. And do you do that in the office? So we have a surgery center that specializes in reproductive health and gynecologic surgery connected to our office. It's called the Roxbury Surgery Center. Oh. There's about 72 doctors in the community, including infertility doctors, that use that location for their egg retrievals for IVF and all kinds of gynecologic surgery. So that's a really good thorough information about some of the testing that you can do. Um, what about treatments? What are some of the fertility treatments they use? I'm going to add one more thing. We talked sure. about everything for the female. For oh. the male, obviously doing a semen analysis yeah, um, and also checking STDs for both female and male are really important for us as well. Um, this, what do you look for in the semen analysis? Is it And how do you collect it? So um, sperm is collected in different ways. Um, for our general population of patients that want to come in and collect in the office, it's done by masturbation into a cup. Um, we look at the sperm count, the sperm movement, the sperm volume, um, and also the well-being of how good the sperm looks. So okay. it's, it's volume, concentration, motility, and morphology. Um, and we get the results back in about less than a week. Now, if a patient, um, for any reason, many of our orthodox patients um, do not want to collect by masturbation, we do have access to give a special condom. Um, it can be collected after intercourse, and you just drop the condom full of the semen in a special cup and then bring it to the office. And then earlier you mentioned that you sometimes have uh, urologists come in and extract so there are some patients that are missing the tube. The tube is called the vas deferens. So in a small group of patients and males, um, that little the plumbing is not all there. So the sperm is being produced all the time, but never exits the penis. So the tes the testicles are holding, and our male urologists do a procedure called a TESE, T-E-S-E, where they extract sperm with a special tiny incision or just a needle going through the scrotal sac into that section that's holding the sperm and suction it out. Oh, wow. That does not sound comfortable. It's done under local anesthesia. Oh. You walk in and you walk out, and I've never seen anyone be too uncomfortable Oh, afterwards. that's great. Okay, good. Uh, let's talk about treatments. Sure. So the treatments um, begin with the least invasive, which is usually artificial insemination, or we call them IUI, intrauterine insemination, where we take the sperm, we wash it up in the laboratory, we put it into a tiny little catheter. People at home have been known to call this the turkey baster, mm -hmm. but we do it and obviously in a small little catheter that gets introduced into the uterus through the cervix vaginally at the right time of the month when the egg is being released. Now, the female can also... Um, be on some medications or no medications. So if medications for stimulation. Ovulation, okay. For a stimulation of ovulation. So if it's just the male problem and the sperm count is a little low, it's recommended the right time of ovulation. It's called a natural cycle with artificial insemination or IUI. Okay. 
if the female also has a little bit of an ovulation problem or we need to just boost her ovulation which what, with what is called superovulation, we can give simple medications like Clomid, which help you ovulate instead of one egg, maybe two or three eggs. Okay. We have another medication called Letrozole. Um, these are all medications that help you release better egg quality or more than one egg. Um, and they can help. And at the same time of the month when you are going to release those eggs, we do the artificial insemination. If those aren't working, the next step would be to proceed with injectable medications that are given for about 10 to 12 days. To the female. To the female. They're generally self-administered in the belly. We teach everyone how to do it. They come in for monitoring because we want to make sure that not too many eggs are being produced or too little eggs are being produced. And then at the right time of the month, we do the artificial insemination again. So that's injectable medications. We also call that ovulation induction with injectable medications mm -hmm. along with artificial insemination or IUI. Oh, it's getting long. Yes, the name's <laughs> getting long, but it's a simple procedure. Right. And if those don't work or if there's problems such as fallopian tubes being blocked from the get-go or the sperm count is very low, generally speaking, sperm counts of less than 5 million per milliliter, recommendations are to go straight to IVF because during the IVF process, we're able to pick the sperm we need and inject it directly into the egg with intracytoplasmic sperm injection or ICSI. And that allows us to be able to help the sperm and the egg unite and fertilize. And once we have embryos, be able to put the embryo back into the uterus vaginally. So there's a lot of tools at your disposal. Yes, we have a lot of tools. And one of the other things that I wanted to talk about is that when doing the IVF, you can also, when an embryo grows, continue to do additional testing, which is really important for people that have had recurrent pregnancy losses, or we're not sure why implantation isn't happening, or if it's for family balancing when you're trying to pick the gender of your child, or even when you're trying to weed out a genetic disease that runs in a family or a disease that both the mother and father may carry, we're able to do genetic testing on embryos, which is called pre-implantation genetic screening and also pre-implantation genetic diagnosis when we're looking for specific diseases to weed out. So in that case, I mean, is it possible that some of the eggs and sperm will have things and other ones won't, and you can pick the right one? Absolutely. So a perfect example would be a couple that comes in in the Caucasian European descent patient, one out of 19 to one out of 29 carry cystic fibrosis, for example. It's rather common. So if a husband and wife both carry cystic fibrosis, one out of every four of their children will actually have the disease of cystic fibrosis. Two out of every four of their children will be carriers just like mom and dad, and one child will not carry anything. So in order to decrease that 25% chance of a diseased child, we are able to do testing on the embryo to know which embryo was diagnosed with a disease and which ones are completely healthy. And then you just put in the healthy one. That's we only put in the healthy one. Kind of amazing. Very important. Every year we see a handful of people um, that come in because they didn't know that they carried a specific disease. Now, with that being said and not knowing that they carry a specific disease, there are also some people um, that, well, actually everyone coming in these days that were offering genetic screening on them and all of the Ashkenazi blood tests, along, it's this, these days it's over 300 different diseases that we're looking for just to make sure that the two spouses are not carriers of the same disease. And when using a sperm donor and an egg donor, we're also able, because most of the reputable labs in town do the genetic testing 
on sperm donors and egg donors now as well. I have two more questions before we take a break, although I want to go on forever. Um, we'll, we're going to have to have you back, clearly. You have way too much <laughs> it would information. Be a um, one thing I wanted to talk about is, is incompatibility, where let's say a male partner has uh, totally fine, healthy sperm and a female partner has totally fine, healthy eggs, but for some reason they're not compatible. So these days between partners, um, blood type is insignificant because now there's an injection called Rogam. So if there's positive and negative blood types mixing, it wouldn't affect that pregnancy or the following pregnancies, um, and it's not really an issue. 20% of pregnancies still, unfortunately, fall under the undiagnosed reasons of infertility, and that's the most frustrating. Where, where pregnancy doesn't Doesn't thrive? occur, and we don't know why. Oh, doesn't occur. Right. And to be honest, it's not that there's an incompatibility, but there's probably something we still have not discovered not in saying. the world of fertility. Well, the world of fertility is still kind of, no pun intended, in its infancy. You're learning a lot every day. We are still one of the youngest fields of medicine that exists, and we're mm -hmm. still learning a lot every single day. But in many of those situations with unexplained infertility, the use of in vitro fertilization and genetic testing and doing everything we can for the male and the female has led to very successful outcomes. Right. So you don't necessarily even know what you're what you're treating, but you're you're bypassing whatever the issue is, even if you didn't know what it was. Correct. My uh, my last question before this break is going to be something that we see in the office from time to time where, where a couple have no problem getting pregnant the first time and then all of a sudden, or even the second time, and then all of a sudden there's an issue uh, with a subsequent attempt to get pregnant. Um, is, that, is that age kicking in or are there other possible things that, that could happen? Well, you finally said the scary word, age. <laughs> um, unfortunately, I'd probably be out of a job if everyone was having a kid like our parents would in their early 20s. Uh -huh. So the number one cause of infertility um, in the world right now is age-related. Um, I'm sure a lot of it has also to do with environmental factors, but the fact that many, many women are waiting until their later 30s to have children, and you know, if you had a child once and you were young, and then you had another child and you got a little older, and you're now trying for the third and it's difficult, guess what? You're probably about five to six years older than the first time you were trying, mm -hmm. and that's probably the number one reason. Now, many things can also affect that, such as C-sections and scar tissue and changes in someone's body and changes in their hormones. Male sperm goes up and down. So I would never say ignore everything and just keep trying. You should still make sure to find out what the cause is. But the number one reason subsequent children are getting harder and harder is because the female is now getting older and older. Mm -hmm. um, at what point does age affect the male partner? So males, as everyone knows, make sperm to the day they die. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, there's not a drastic change, but lots of new research has shown the significant increase in chromosomal abnormalities, imprinting disorders, autism for males that have using sperm over the age of 40. So we are trying to get the word out for men to freeze their sperm as well oh, to be used um, in the future when if they're not ready to have a child. So well, that is a perfect segue into our break because when we come back, that's what I want to talk about is fertility preservation. So um, we're going to take a quick commercial break and we'll be right back with Dr. Shaheen Gadir on the Informed Pregnancy Podcast. <laughs> Hey everyone, it's Dr. Berlin, and I want to talk to you about something that is close to my heart, literally. 
omega-3. It's a crucial nutrient that's sadly overlooked. With 95% of women deficient needed, the supplement brand I trust created their brand new omega-3 soft gels. Designed by perinatal experts, they support you and your baby's well-being from fertility to pregnancy and beyond. Unlike other brands, Needed's Omega-3 is sustainable, pesticide-free, and third-party tested for purity. Plus, my favorite, it has a milder taste and smell, perfect for sensitive mamas. Don't wait. Visit thisisneeded.com and use code BERLIN to get 20% off your initial order. Experience the needed difference consciously crafted for your health and the planet. Welcome back to the Informed Pregnancy Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Elliot Berlin, and we're continuing our discussion with Dr. Shaheen Gadir. Welcome back. Thank you very much. Uh, towards the end, we started to talk about age, and uh, it's becoming a very significant factor, as you mentioned, the number one factor for fertility, and also um, around where I work, a lot of people are very into career first and decide to have children later on. Um, what are the some, some of the things that you can do to... Keep your fertility window open if you want to have children later. So this is a topic that has become incredibly hot in our country, um, the fact, and also in other countries as well. But fertility preservation for men and, uh, of course, for women, both um, are becoming incredibly important. In the world of female fertility preservation, egg freezing um, and also embryo freezing for women that actually have a partner um, and know that they want to have a child but are not ready have become huge. Um, it is an area, the egg freezing area has, is an area that causes, I think, women a lot of anxiety. Um, it unfortunately makes some people reassess where they are in their personal lives, which they may not want to reassess. Um, but it's an important thing to look at. And so to think I do about. see that they they are anxious about it. Whenever it's brought up to me, there's a, a lot of there's a lot of emotion around it, and uh, and anxiousness is probably the right term. What goes into doing it? If somebody wants to freeze their eggs, what's the process like? So I will tell you that ninety nine percent of my patients that come in for egg freezing and do it afterwards tell me the same thing that it was so much easier than I ever thought. And I think getting the courage to come up and see me in the office was probably the hardest part of it all. Interesting. So I, I usually make sure that no one leaves that same anxiety level walking in because they're well-educated. They understand every single step of it. And I'm going to kind of discuss that with you right now. Okay. So a patient will come in for a consultation where we go through the entire medical history and everything important about the lifestyle and about their life. And also, again, what their goals are. So if someone comes in and says, I want to make sure I have enough eggs for four kids, it's very different than if someone comes in and says, you know, I think I may want to have a child later. Mm -hmm. um, and we make sure to address that. Um, the entire process of doing egg freezing, the way that we do it in our office, is that uh, the female calls us on the first day of their period. Um, they usually come in for a blood test and ultrasound um, on day two or three of their period. Um, during that time between the consultation and that first visit, um, we usually check the AMH level, which is that hormone that has to do with the egg reserve, and we have a good understanding of how fertile they are. 
So generally, our patients are going to be put on a birth control pill for about 10 to 20 days to stop their cycle so they do not ovulate on their own. And after that, we take over with about 10 to 12 days of self-administered injections that we teach the patient how to give themselves in their belly. And they have to come to the office four or five times for ultrasounds and blood tests to see how they're doing and how they're coming along. Okay, so that's over about how many days? So it's usually, I like to give an average, about two weeks of birth control to stop their cycle and about two weeks of the injections. So it's about a month, and then the eggs come out. Okay. So the first two weeks is one visit in the beginning and then taking a birth control pill for two weeks. And for patients that can't tolerate birth control, we go right into the injections. So, um, and you could be done in two weeks. So from the time you get your period, you could truly be done and your eggs are harvested and they're out of your body at the end of the two weeks. It, uh, it seems, I think people who are squeamish about needles are wondering if they can actually inject themselves. So very, very, very good question. Um, we have less than 1% of our patients that really can't do it or do not want to do it and don't do it. So if you want to come to our office every day, we have nurses available that give it to you. If you want to have someone come to your house every day, we have nurses that do house calls and home calls every single day to give the injections as well. Do people sometimes have a partner do it? A lot of times people have – so what I love is when friends come together to freeze their eggs. Oh. So we've had that happen a lot where people come in groups to, you know, one, two person, three people, four people to come in to freeze their eggs together. And it, you can either have your mom, your neighbor, your dad, a friend, or yourself give the injections. It's not complicated. The number one phone call I get during the week is someone calling me and saying, I'm afraid I'm not getting the injection because I hardly feel it. Oh, interesting. So that is, uh, for us, very important because the needles are so tiny that we barely, barely sometimes feel them going in. And they are, for our, our patients that have even phobias of needles, by the end of this process, have been able to They're give fine. themselves the injection. Oh, interesting. Is it just once a day or is it multiple times? Um, it's generally, I tell my patients to do them all at once, but it's more than one injection. Okay. So it's sometime between two to three, sometimes even four injections, but they can be given right one after another. Where in the body do they, they go? go? You pinch your belly. Hopefully you can grab a little bit of <laughs> chubs there, um, and you just inject while holding. Okay. And so they all go? They, they all just go, go right around the belly button on both sides. You can pick where you want to do. You just give an alcohol wipe, and there you go. For two weeks? Yes. And then after that? After that, the eggs come out in our, in our surgery center. Um, we have a full anesthesiology team. They start an IV, and in the IV goes a little bit of medication to relax you when you arrive. And once we move you into our surgery center, um, our anesthesiologist gives you a little bit of a sedation. Usually it's a medication called propofol where it allows you just to fall asleep. You're totally breathing on your own. There are no tubes down your throat. Um, it takes about five to ten minutes. You wake up and you're back in the recovery area and you have absolutely no idea what happened and you don't feel anything. And there's no, there's no incision for this? There are no incisions whatsoever. So an ultrasound, the same ultrasound that assesses your ovaries and does all the ultrasounds to see how the eggs are growing during those two-week process is the same ultrasound we put in while you're under anesthesia, but there's a tiny little hole on the side of this ultrasound where a special needle goes through, mm -hmm. and the needle goes through the vaginal wall, and it's a special hollow needle that helps sucks the eggs out. Okay. So just like a little, um, you're just basically vacuuming out. Absolutely. And there's no reason to sew that incision. We don't cut the incision open. We don't stitch the incision. Is there any pain after the procedure? Um, 
if you have made a good number of eggs, some people feel a little crampy afterwards. Okay. So the fact that their ovary was poked with a needle sometimes makes them a little sensitive and they are a little crampy. Many of our patients go home with just minimal cramping and that's it. Okay. And then could they take something for cramping? I tell my patients you can take anything you want. The one that we recommend the most is Tylenol, mm-hmm. and usually people do just fine with that. Okay. So it's not that intense. Um, and then once you have the eggs, do you do anything to them or before freezing? So we always assess all of the eggs. Every egg that is mature is frozen. Any egg that is immature gets watched till the next day to see if it matures outside of the body. If it does, it gets frozen. Um, but if you have an egg that does not mature in 24 hours, then it's not worthy of being frozen. What do you look for? What's the difference between a mature egg? There and... is a signal that an egg gives when it's mature versus immature, which has to do with the number of polar bodies. And that's how we kind of can tell if an egg is mature or not. Um, one of the other things that we can do is after the eggs have been frozen, if someone chooses to freeze an embryo, is we introduce the egg and the sperm together afterwards, and we let the embryo then grow for about five to seven days. We can even do the biopsy to genetically test them, and then we freeze the embryos. And if and in these days, most about 95% of our patients are doing the genetic testing, mm-hmm. and we can come back and let them know from your X number of embryos that were frozen. These were the normal genetic tested ones. These were how many were male. These were how many were female. And then they get saved to be used anytime in the future. And labeled. Of course. Okay. So you're basically doing half of the IVF. Exactly. We're doing half of the IVF. We are not doing the implantation part or what's called the frozen embryo transfer. That will come whenever they're ready. Whenever they're ready. Now, sometimes it's the next month. Um, Sometimes we've put embryo back 15 years later. And egg freezing, we weren't doing 15 years ago, so we haven't done an egg freeze now 15 years later. Um, But we are using a lot of the eggs that we started to freeze about, let's say, seven years ago, six, seven, eight years ago. Mm -hmm. Um, And we have had many successful outcomes so far. So uh, that's kind of mind-blowing, though, that 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 child was sort of created 15 years ago, but then just came into the world 15 years later. Absolutely. That's really interesting. Um, Is there a time limit that we know of on frozen embryos? Um, We have had a successful pregnancy in our office with an embryo that was about 15 years old. Um, I have not heard of many um, older than that in other clinics. Uh, Frozen sperm, um, I have one of the world's records of the oldest sperm that was frozen, which was 31 and a half years old. Oh, wow. Yeah, uh, of being frozen. Yeah. So um, it was frozen 31 and a half years before, and we used it. And the couple was able to have three successful pregnancies wow. um, and live births from that sperm. No kidding. Um, is there? I mean, we're talking about this process for for fertility pres- preservation, and we mentioned age. So, starting with age, when is a good time for someone to consider doing this? I love that question, and I have the same answer every single time. The younger, the better. So, egg quality gets worse every single year of a female's life. Um, The peak of our fertility does not happen at 16, actually. It happens um, after the age of 21. So we would say any time from 21 on. Now, from 21 to 30, we really don't have a lot of people that are worrying about their fertility. Mm -hmm. The most incredible thing is that we do have some patients that have come in that age category to freeze their eggs. Um, One of them, for example, had lost an ovary because she had a, a cyst on it, and they couldn't get the cyst out. They had to take the whole ovary. 
Um, so a patient like that who is susceptible to having another cyst on the other ovary and losing that ovary, it's very, very, very important, especially mm-hmm. if you just have one left. We've also had patients, and let's say they're like she was, I think, 26 years old and was going to be traveling a lot, and she knew for a fact she was not going to be having children for many years. She came in and did it. The typical age that people are coming in now is over 30. Now, I'd say six years ago, the typical age that everyone was doing egg freezing was 39 and a half right before the 40th birthday when people were getting really freaked out about their age and running in. But we know that egg quality when you're getting near 40 is not that great. So I think the most common age that I would recommend getting an assessment and really assessing where you are in your life in terms of your reproduction is at the age of 30. What about men? So men, um, as I touched on a little bit earlier. Yeah, you said around 40 things start to change. So a lot of studies have shown that after the age of 40, there's a significant increase in abnormalities in the offspring. So I would tell anyone the same thing. If you're in your 20s and you want to freeze some good sperm, um, it's a great idea. The other day I had a patient who came in. He was 31, and he told me, "Uh, guess what, doc? When I was 15, I had lymphoma, and I had to get chemotherapy and radiation. And I immediately asked, did you freeze your sperm? And he said, yes, my parents took me to freeze sperm before my treatment. Oh, wow. So if we didn't have that sperm, so yeah, let's talk about that because we we mostly talked about age, but there's other things, other reasons why somebody would want to freeze sperm or eggs. Absolutely. So it's called oncofertility. It's oncologic fertility preservation for anyone that's been diagnosed with cancer, male or female, and they are not done with their reproductive. Um, desires of more children, we highly recommend quickly freezing egg and quickly freezing sperm before any kind of chemotherapy or radiation. Um, what is What about endometriosis? So endometriosis is a disease where the lining of the uterus, instead of growing there and at the end of the month shedding as the period, grows on areas outside of the uterus. So either on the uterus, on the ovary, on the fallopian tube, or anywhere in the pelvic cavity. Um, Endometriosis is very painful because at the time of the month where the blood vessels get the thickest right before they rupture and before the lining of the uterus is sloughed off as the period, it also gets thick and grows into the lining of your pelvis, into the fallopian tubes, and it can be incredibly painful. Mm. So that's why patients with endometriosis have very, very painful periods. Um, Endometriosis has also been shown to affect egg quality and definitely affect the quality of the eggs on the ovaries. Many studies have shown increased pregnancy rates for patients with um, endometriosis who underwent IVF because it kind of bypasses all of the damage of the fallopian tubes. Mm -hmm. It also bypasses a lot of what goes on on the ovary where we're able to take the egg out ourselves and give people really high pregnancy rates and avoid all of the issues that come along with endometriosis. Is, Is there a treatment for endometriosis itself? There is treatment for endometriosis, but it involves either the continuous use of birth control pills or an injection that puts you into a premature menopause with all of the side effects of menopause, such as hot flashes, vaginal dryness, weakening of your bones, um, all of those things that come along with it. So many of our patients prefer not to do that treatment, especially if they're in their reproductive years and are trying to get pregnant. Sure. And for many of the people that have to do that, sometimes they desire to freeze their eggs before that. 
Um, are there people who are not good candidates for freezing sperm and egg? There are. I mean, there are definitely some people. I have had people that have come into the office and said, you know, I, I think I'm going to be using an egg donor because I have a significant um, family disposition to mental health disorders. Mm-hmm. Um, I have had patients uh, come in and their egg quality um, is so poor and their egg count is so low that they prefer not to freeze their eggs and use an egg donor as well. And the same for sperm as well. Is the process of using an egg donor similar to freezing eggs, or is it more similar to IVF? So the process of using the egg donor is that the person that you're going to select, which is an anonymous egg donor who you never meet and she never meets you, she is going to go under all the injections and everything that was done to retrieve the eggs with the IVF. And then the sperm is going to be inseminated into that egg. And when the embryo is created, it goes into the intended parent and not back into the donor. Does all that happen in your office? Everything. So, So, But they never meet each other? Never meet each other. Um, 99% of our egg donors and sperm donors are anonymous unless it's a known donor situation. Right. Um, When people bring in their own donors or friends or sisters or cousins. Um, And we do it all in the office. This is called third-party reproduction. Anyone using an egg donor, anyone using a sperm donor, or anyone using a gestational mom to carry the baby for them goes through a division called third party. Um, Southern California Reproductive Center has one of the largest third party divisions out of all the fertility centers um, on the west coast of the United States. So the, uh, you said egg donor, sperm donor, and? Surrogate. Surrogate. Okay. Do, do you help find a surrogate or they? that's a separate? So we do not have our own agency, but we do have a service at our office that helps you find the surrogate and the donor and the sperm donor, whatever you need. We have someone, uh, we have a third-party concierge who is set up to help you find exactly the person that you kind of desire. Okay. I bet that's going to be a whole separate episode at some point. (laughs) Um, What are some of the newest treatments that are happening? You you mentioned that reproductive endocrinology is in its infancy stage, but it's also, um, it's growing by leaps and bounds, and the technology is kind of amazing how it's advancing. I think the technology behind freezing of eggs has advanced so much that we do great freezing and thawing an egg and using it. The biggest issue is that we can't change a quality of an egg. So if you come to us at 42 and freeze an egg, you're probably not going to have a lot of good eggs. Mm-hmm. If you come to us at the age of 30 when your eggs are usually doing very well, you're probably going to have great eggs and you could use them for the future and do very well. So getting the message out there has probably become the biggest challenge in my life. I have really, really decided to dedicate a lot of what I do to education and awareness, um, female empowerment, also male empowerment. So everything to do to give you power to have children down the line, we are helping with these days. Um, Can you do it multiple times? You can do egg freezing as many times as you want. It will not deplete your egg reserve. It will not put you into an early menopause. It does not cause cancer. You can do it as many times. How many eggs is a woman born with typically? So when a female is in utero, so that means when she's in her mom's uterus, Mm -hmm. she has 20 million eggs. Oh, wow. At birth, it drops to 2 million. No kidding. From birth to the age of 13, 14, when your first period comes, you're down to about 430,000 eggs. Oh, yeah. It sounds like my stock uh, portfolio. But uh, (laughs) Porsche's here, so we're going to fix that. (laughs) Um, And after that, uh, every month when you release one egg, 
you lose between a thousand to two thousand eggs in the dying process. Okay. So when that one egg is uh, trying to succeed and to be released, we have a significant decline with other eggs dying off in the process. Wow, those are kind of much higher numbers than I would have thought in the in the drop. And absolutely, I think ninety nine percent of this world does not realize that by re- releasing one egg, over a thousand die in the process. I I didn't know. I thought now five. you know. I thought five or six. <laughs> uh, no, it's a lot. My my high school textbook was wrong, or at least the picture was wrong. Yes. Um, there's uh, two other things. Uh, we're running out of time again, but uh, you mentioned male and female. What about transgender pregnancy? So we have a lot of transgender patients, as and it's becoming more and more common. Um, so before people transition from one gender to another, we have. A lot of them coming into our office. Um, when females are transitioning to male, many of them have come to the office and freeze their eggs beforehand. Mm-hmm. So before being exposed to testosterone and all the hormones that help them change, um, they like to freeze their eggs. And the same thing for men. Before doing anything um, drastic in terms of sperm production and being on anti-testosterone medications, they sperm freeze as well. Mm-hmm. And then do you also do um, like IVF? With transgender couples? Yes. So we've had uh, people come into the office that um, have sperm or egg frozen from the past and want to use it for the future. Um, We are able to do a lot of things. It depends on exactly the needs of the couple, but there's pretty much not a couple out there that we can't really help. Okay. That's amazing. Um, Something I was reading about recently, and I don't even know if it's here yet, is... um, and I'm just I'm talking about because it, it, it kind of blew my mind that we have the technology to do this is uh, three parent IVF for mitochondrial disease. So that's not quite legal in the United States yet. Yet, um, but taking an aspect of the egg and then replacing it with that aspect from another egg um, is something that's been done in foreign countries and probably something in the pipeline for us as well. Yeah. So um, the mitochondria is the powerhouse of the cell. I think that you have to know that in order to graduate high school. Um, but sometimes people have mitochondrial disease where they don't work very well. They're, they're sort of like batteries for a cell. And they don't um, if they don't produce the energy that the cell needs, then they, they can create all sorts of disease, which also makes fertility difficult. Is that right? It's hard. hard. It's, it's extremely accurate. Um, unfortunately, Many of the clinics in this country know nothing about this. None of us have been trained to do this, and we're not anywhere near doing it. Um, but hopefully, I, I pray that in the very near future, that will change. Yeah, that way, um, somebody with this, these diseases will be able to um, to overcome it as well and have babies. Um, but it's just kind of neat that you can take the egg from somebody with mitochondrial disease and an egg from somebody who doesn't have mitochondrial disease and literally take out that one component and put it into into the unhealthy uh, egg and make it healthy and uh, create a baby with that. It's uh, amazing what you guys uh, are doing and how many people today, I think, are able to uh, realize their, their goals of having babies that couldn't do it just 10 or 20 years ago. It's it's a very re- rewarding field, and we have made gigantic strides and um, success rates that are now in the 70 and 80 percentile going to live birth from the first IVFs that we're doing. Hmm. And these were numbers that were unheard of in the past, and we're only getting better and better every day. 
Yeah. And what's extra nice is how calm you are about it, how uh, not just knowledgeable you are, but how you really uh, can speak to me and also to other people who don't have any medical background in ways that it's really easiest for us to absorb the information. Well, I appreciate that very much. And I think if you're seeing a physician and you're not really understanding what's going on, then that's the wrong physician for you. That makes sense. So there's a lot of choices out there, and we try to make it as easy and as clear as possible for all of our patients. Dr. Gadir, where can we find you online? Um, We are at www.scrcivf.com, which is Southern California Reproductive Center. Um, Or I could just be Googled under Dr. Shaheen Gadir, S-H-A-H-I-N. Last name is G-H-A-D-I-R. And also be followed on Instagram, uh, Facebook, and Twitter. Oh, amazing. I'm going to look for you there. Uh, Thanks again for being here. And uh, you can also find Dr. Gadir on our podcast page on our website. Thanks a million for listening to the Informed Pregnancy Podcast. If you have a topic you'd like us to discuss, send your suggestions to info at informedpregnancy.com. And visit us online for lots more pregnancy and parenting media at informedpregnancy.com. I got